Today we're continuing this series we've been doing on the Kingdom of God. And if you've missed any of those talks, I'd encourage you to either listen to them or to watch them on the website. They, they all build on each other. And over the last four talks, we've seen that the kingdom of God is not like any other kingdom. It's not a, a geographical or a political kingdom. It is essentially where we see the rule and the reign of God. The kingdom reflects the king. It's where his nature is expressed. And so where we see love and beauty and truth and peace and justice and healing, all the positive and wonderful qualities exhibited, there we see the expression of the kingdom of God. Today we're going to look at what it means to be kingdom disciples and to explore reasons that we often find ourselves frustrated as we seek to live the lives that God calls us to. Being a Christian, I don't know whether you've noticed, can be a somewhat confusing and frustrating uh, thing. Have you noticed how hard it is to exhibit those qualities in your own life, to consistently and excellently exhibit the qualities of, of love and truth and peace and to be unselfish, to be generous, to be kind, to be what people mean when they talk about being a really good person? Even among those who might describe themselves using that phrase, a good person, the reality is that they don't live up to their own standards, at least some of the time. If we're honest with ourselves, every one of us fails to behave the way that God has designed us to. In fact, the way our best selves wish we would. We think things, we say things, we do things which are out of line with God's standards and disappointingly short of our own no matter how hard we try. If we take a moment to review the past week right now, I'm assuming I'm not alone in feeling, ah, I could have done better. Some days we might feel we've done well, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. We've been loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. But other days or other minutes within the day, we have struggled. We've done things that we know are not aligned with what God wants us to do. Now, if that sounds familiar, I just want to assure you, you're not alone. The experience, this experience is reflected throughout the Bible, really, especially in the New Testament letters. Now, today we're going to touch on quite a few texts, very briefly, uh, which speak into this issue. In some passages, we're encouraged that we are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and our lives have been transformed. Okay, Colossians 1:13, for instance, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We're born again. We're made new as citizens of the kingdom of God. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Some scholars describe the type of language here as indicative. Indicative. It tells us or indicates all that we already have and are because of Jesus. And yet we also read many verses that exhort us to change our lives. Very often in Paul's letters, you have this indicative in the first chapters, and then it switches into another form. And so scriptures that scholars might refer to as imperative Indicative and then imperative. So here's a couple of examples. 1 Peter 2 verse 1 says this. Rid yourselves 
of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Or Colossians 3 verse 5, again, similarly, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, the old person that you were. Put to death those things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And so you might say, well, ah, this is, this is confusing. If the indicative statements are true, why do we need the imperative statements? If I'm a new creation, if I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and the old has gone, why do I need to be warned about deceit and envy and lust and evil desires and greed and to put to death what I thought was supposed to be already dead? The Bible tells us as Christians that we are indeed a new creation. We're reborn and we are made completely righteous. Therefore, we should expect to live perfect lives, right? No, we remain a work in progress. If this wasn't so, the Bible wouldn't need all these imperative scriptures encouraging us to change. The truth is that we all sin, we all fall short, of God's standards, sometimes inadvertently, out of our weakness, sometimes even willfully. We do things we ought not to have done, and we fail to do things that we ought to have done. And so this raises the question, what's the problem? John Bodley mentioned a couple of weeks ago that growing in our understanding of the now and the not yet of the kingdom gives us a really helpful perspective on this question. And so he did these beautiful drawings. The Bible describing two ages, two periods of time. We have the present age, sometimes referred to as this present evil age. And then we have the age to come when God's kingdom will be expressed in all its fullness. God's will will be done fully. Through Jesus's ministry, his message, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the events of Pentecost, shown here, you see on the left-hand side, the age to come somehow broke into the present. We, the Christian community, exist in the time, between the times, where both ages are experienced simultaneously. We experience both the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Theologians use the term inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated essentially means beginning of, and eschatology means the end things. In other words, we live in a time when the new age, the future age, has begun. It's broken in through Jesus, but we are still waiting for the time when it will be fully experienced. It's a time of tension. The tension between the now and the not yet of the kingdom, it doesn't just apply to history or to the mystery of suffering in the world or to the mystery of why some people are healed while others are not, it exists within us, within our own personal discipleship. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died, he rose again, he won the decisive victory over Satan. If we commit our lives to following him, we're forgiven of our sins, we are born again, we're made completely righteous, and our sinful nature has been killed. It's gone. When we give our lives to Jesus, we are transformed In that moment, it's already happened. But we also see the not yet because we are continuing to be transformed. For example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Being is an ongoing process. Bit by bit, we're in this ongoing process of being transformed from what we were once like 
to becoming more and more like the person of Jesus. Two chapters later, he contrasts the bodies we live in right now, which are vulnerable to sin and sickness and aging. He contrasts them with the resurrected bodies that we will enjoy in the age to come. So 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2 says this, for while we are in, or I should say, meanwhile, verse 2, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. For while we're in this tent, this body, this existence here on earth, we groan and are burdened because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We groan and we're burdened as we wrestle with the frustrations and the limitations of life in this present age, longing for the day when everything will be as God desires it to be. Debbie came up with a fresh way of describing this tension when she likened it to uh, the living between the times as similar to the experience of being a teenager. So childhood is one age, adulthood is a future age, and a teenager lives between the times. They're still a child, but sometimes new things are happening which are adult. Hair is growing in new places, an adult body is emerging, often accompanied by distressing or difficult things like acne and growing pains. They might experience more independence, but childhood constraints, like what time you have to be home, are still in place. The two ages coexist and collide. Aspects of the future age are breaking in, but adulthood is still in the future. And being a teenager, as we know, can be an awkward and an uncomfortable experience. As I was preparing this talk this week, I started reflecting on my own teenage experience. And I was a little bit of a late developer. And so as I became a teenager, I remained short and skinny while others of my friends shot up in weight and just filled out, sorry, shot up in height and filled out in weight. And they developed facial hair while all I had was kind of blonde fluff. And while I watched some of my friends move quite quickly from looking like a child to looking like an adult, I was acutely aware that I was on the child end of that spectrum a lot longer than I wanted to be. I remember a conversation when I was 13 with a friend who was 15, and he had quite substantial facial hair, almost a beard. And he said, the secret to facial hair growth is to start shaving early, okay? Somehow stimulating fluff to become bristle. So I went straight home from that conversation. I found my father's razor, got it out, and um, I shaved for the very first time, age 13 there. No water or soap needed, just dry scraping, absolutely no resistance to scrape the fluff off. Now, I looked in the mirror, and now my face looked as silky smooth as a baby's bottom. (laughs) But I was determined not to turn back. And this will amuse you. It took about a week after shaving for any even fine stubble to begin to appear. And so as I wanted to look my most grown-up among my friends at church, particularly the girls, I used to shave as soon as I got home on a Sunday evening and hope that by the next Sunday that the sort of sandpaper texture of the top lip would just begin to show. So like it said in 2 Corinthians 5 there, meanwhile I groaned longing for the age to come, experiencing childhood, but longing for adulthood. 
You may have heard John Bodley introduce us to the phrase which theologians use to describe this, eschatological tension. And that's always conjured up for me like a, a picture of a man going to the doctor because he's like all out of sorts, he's got, suffering some sort of condition. And uh, he gets home and his wife says, hi darling, what did the doctor say? Well, he says, I'm suffering from a condition. It's called eschatological tension. Ooh, she says, sounds uncomfortable. Yes, it is. It is. It's very uncomfortable. And this is what Paul meant when he said, we are groaning, we are burdened. We know that we're made new in Jesus. We're sons and daughters under the rule and reign of God. And yet, this is in tension with the present age. And we still struggle. So how can we respond to this? Well, as you've heard already in this series, it's, it's a bit of a pitfall to insist that it must be either, either, now, or not yet. On the one hand, if we only focus on what Jesus has already done for us, the indicative scriptures, we can fall into triumphalism, essentially the view that we can expect to have perfect health or be completely free from sin. We can have victory in every area of our life. And so songs sung in triumphalist churches and sermons preached would tend to emphasize the victory we have in Christ with almost no reference to the struggle. There's often an oversimplification of the dynamics of the spiritual battle. And the implicit message is that if we are people of faith, we are beyond having to wrestle with all that. And this becomes somewhat awkward when we inevitably fail and we're challenged with verses like we find in the book of James. Resist the devil and he will flee from you without acknowledging that whilst that's true, there is no human being beside Jesus who has managed to live that verse out without succumbing to temptation at some point. In a triumphalist environment, there's this inevitable shortfall in sympathy for the reality that people do struggle and there is uh, too great a swing towards the already of the kingdom. Like the kingdom of God is already fully available if we'll just believe for it. That's triumphalism. At the other end of the spectrum, defeatism teaches the idea that the Christian life is going to be largely defeat until Christ returns. So we get saved and forgiven, but don't really expect God to transform your life. We are, you know, destined to struggle on until Jesus returns. That's way too much of the not yet. And this can be equally destructive because it bluntens the zeal for God's kingdom for holiness, for all that God wants for us. And we can end up, you know, saying hurtful things and trying to shrug it off and say, hey, well, you know, no one's perfect. Uh, we can settle for addictions and vices, telling ourselves, well, in heaven I won't need it, but here on earth I'm only human. But the reality of the not yet is not an excuse to distance ourselves from our responsibility. We can't be mean with our words or cut someone up in traffic and just use the excuse, sorry, it's the not yet of the kingdom. <laughs> we don't want to veer towards triumphalism or defeatism. The truth lies in the mystery of the tension of the both and, the already and the not yet. So how do we live in this tension? I'm sure every one of you here realizes that we aren't perfect, but also wants to grow as a disciple. So how do we do that? The answer can be summed up in this slightly paradoxical statement. Effectively, be who you already are. 
passage of scripture that helps us grasp this is Colossians 3 that we've already visited. Uh, And as we read on, it blends together indicative language with imperative language. Paul uses the imperative. He's urging us to change when he writes this. This is Colossians 3, verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. And then changes, mid-sentence, indicative language describing what God has already accomplished in our lives. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Echoing the text I mentioned earlier, if anyone's in Christ, the old's gone. The new is here. You're a new person. Uh, Here, as in many of Paul's letters, he uses the language of taking off, putting off certain behaviors and putting on new ones. That symbolism is taken from the early church practice of baptism, where a candidate would arrive wearing their old clothes but carrying new ones. The clothes represented their old and their new lives. And they would descend into the water, be baptized, um, wearing their old life. They would figuratively die in the act of baptism and then rise again to put on this new garment symbolizing the new creation, their new identity. And Paul is exhorting us in the same breath to become the person we already are. The language kind of defies our logic, but I suspect Paul was trying to address one of the big barriers to us living as Jesus intends us to live, and that is our inability to accept the truth and the magnitude of who we are now in Christ. I was struck by the illustration Ben Hyatt shared some time ago about his dog, Bob, Uh, who his family rescued uh, from an abusive, neglectful household. For weeks after arrival, the poor dog would cower with its nose in the corner, flinching whenever a human approached. He'd been rescued. He now lived with a loving and compassionate master. He was part of a new, loving family. The dog's problem was no longer physical or practical. It was a psychological one. It had yet to fully grasp how much its life had changed, and that was reflected in its behavior. When the dog's worldview changed, uh, his life was transformed too. And in the same way as Christians, we've experienced a similar seismic shift in our identity. We've experienced, uh, we've been born again and into God's kingdom. Things have been flipped upside down. We've gone from death to life, from darkness to light from being a sinner to being a saint. And we now march, as Dave said earlier in the series, to the beat of a different drum. And we find that beat as a transformation happens in here, shifting our mindset. So Romans 12 verse 2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's where the transformation begins. The gateway to growth isn't about strengthening our resolve and our ability to resist sin, but really in grasping and understanding what God has done in us, and that eventually works its way out in our actions. And that happens through the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. Over time, he works in us, in breakthrough encounter moments, 
But in the main, gradually through prayer and engaging with the Bible, we discover things which once had power over us no longer do. This process of sanctification, things which gripped our lives once no longer do. We're transformed over time and find greater freedom to live as God designed us to live. But at the same time, it doesn't feel much more comfortable because even as you get, as it were, more like Jesus, you become acutely aware of how much you're still not like Jesus. So we become conscious of shortcomings we hadn't even recognized before. The more I grow as a follower of Jesus, the more acutely I feel this. It may be that I'm in a conversation which kind of turns to speaking a bit negatively about someone who's not present, and I let slip something, you know, unnecessarily gossipy. Just drop that juicy morsel of information into the conversation. Perhaps I, you know, get the, get the laugh that I was looking for. And afterwards, I feel terrible. I might have difficulty sleeping as I realize how mean that was. I'm gutted at myself for what I said. Or perhaps I've done well in something, like some spiritual discipline, you know, and I quite like people to know, you know, I fill up with pride and I'm really rather special, not like those lesser Christians who can't get it all together. And then I realize what I'm doing, like a Pharisee, I'm horrified at my self-righteous attitude. Just pick a little example in your own life, something you've done or said or thought. And so with the Apostle Paul and with many of you, I groan. And I say, oh God, I can't wait for that day when you will finally transform my nature so that every single part of me wants what you want. But it's the Holy Spirit's work that enables us to even notice the tension. Becoming who we already are is not something we can do with our own willpower. It's dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's something we can cooperate with, with him as he also is at work. And so we'll finish with Philippians chapter 2 here. Paul, again, in the uh, imperative, says, continue to work out your salvation. You work at it. You work it out. For it is God with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We work out our salvation. We live the life of a disciple, but it is God working his sanctification in us to achieve that. What is working out look like in practice? Well, first, by pressing into our relationship with God through spiritual disciplines, things like reading the Bible through prayer, through worship, even fasting. And secondly, share your life with others. We all need places, we all need relationships where we can be honest about our lives. We can all expect to experience both the kingdom breaking in in already and not having broken in yet in our journey of faith. In both experiences, we are called to love, support, and walk with each other. There's a mystery to the kingdom of God, and that is certainly true when it comes to kingdom discipleship. We are both new creations, and we are a work in progress. We're simultaneously triumphant and groaning. As strange as that may feel, let me encourage you that if you recognize this experience in your life, you are what is known as a normal Christian, okay? And some of you, in hearing that, you may be experiencing a sense of relief. You're thinking, you mean I'm not the only one who's struggling? I can come out of hiding? Yes. When we behave like mixed-up teenagers, God isn't at all phased 
by what we're going through. His love is undiminished for us. Through the cross, he's already accomplished our salvation. So we can be confident that ultimately he will triumph in our lives. And there's every reason for us to be filled with hope. Until then, when we fail, when we become weary with the struggle of life, we pray that God would break the power of shame with his grace and truth by reminding us of the overwhelming power of his love and the new life that he's working in us.